been sitting here listening to the music this morning, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to focus in the last part of Acts chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5. This is one of those challenging passages in the Bible. Uh, It's one of those, I guess you almost could call it, um, it's a bummer passage. It's not one that you rejoice or shout over. But I want you to see something that, that, that the Holy Spirit put in my heart this morning as I was thinking about this. I want you to see the work of a heavenly father in the life of his church and in the life of his people. We're talking about the church in action, and that is the book of Acts, the church in action, the acts of the apostles, the acts, the actions of the followers of Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, say amen. amen. If we're seeking to follow Christ, then we are to seek to follow him as a true follower of Christ, not merely someone who professes to be a follower of Christ. And to do that, it is necessary, it is absolutely necessary that we be empowered and enabled and equipped to do so by the Holy Spirit of God. And the church in Acts is a church that is filled with the Spirit. We also know and we see from really chapter 4, 5, and 6, we see that the church as it is in action, anytime the church starts moving forward and doing God's work, whenever God is at work, Satan will fight. In chapter 4, you can see, as we have looked at a few weeks ago, that when the church is in action, there will be the, the, Satan will fight through persecution from outside the church. The, the leaders of the day said, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They tried to stop, and there's attacks from without. And we can expect that. There are, there are places in the world where the church is experiencing persecution and experiencing pressure from without. In chapter 6, we will in the future look at chapter 6 that shows us that sometimes Satan fights with problems from within. If Satan can't stop us from the outside, he'll get to work in God's people and in the inside. And there's problems, and some of them are not necessarily, um, they're not sinful problems. They're just problems that happen when you have a group of people to get together. How many of you can, can acknowledge that just from a family gathering, if you get five or six people together, you can potentially have some problems? Now, not your families, I know. Y'all are, y'all are spiritual and y'all love each other, but your neighbor's family, your, you know, those you know around you. We know that any time you get people together, and the more people you get together, the more possibilities there are for problems. In chapter 5, we'll see that Satan will fight, and sometimes his attack is the people who are the church. The people who are the church. Now, Ananias and Sapphira that we'll see in Acts chapter 5 were members of the church. And yet Satan put into their heart to do something that could have potentially affected and altered what was taking place in that body of believers. Now, again, I know it's none of y'all. Y'all are, y'all are the spiritual crowd this morning, not like that 8 o'clock crowd that was just carnal and I really had to straighten them out. There are some people who, it's, this is hard to believe, but there are some people who come to church just to fight. They like to fight. Now, I know maybe you've been part of a church like that. Let me just tell you, at Central, and this has been the tradition before, and it will continue to be what we do, if you are here to fight, 
please go somewhere else to fight. We're not here to fight. We're not here to bicker. We're not here to have a, a, a big, you know, sometimes church meetings or church business meetings get into, I mean, I suspect there are plenty of churches around where that will fit right in. Maybe, but not here. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs 22, cast out a scorner and strife will cease and contention will go out. Sometimes God has to cast the scorner out. Occasionally, he uses us to cast the scorner out. But this, the trouble, the problem in this situation came from the people who are the church. I want you to see, I want to begin reading in Acts chapter 4. Boy, it's awful quiet this morning on that note. Maybe I must have touched a, a nerve or something. If you want to fight, just meet me outside late. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> what was the saying a couple years ago? Cash me outside late. Anyway, something like that. I want you to see, we're going to begin in the ending of chapter 4. And I want you to remember that the chapter divisions, while helpful and therefore our convenience, are not inspired. And so the, the story, the account, you really need to follow the end of chapter 4 into chapter 5 to see the comparison of what is taking place and why this is placed here. It's not separated from what comes before. Follow with me from verse 36. And Joseph, or Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price. Now you notice the comparison? Here's Barnabas who sold it and brought the money to be used for the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ. But Ananias and Sapphira sold it and brought, kept back part of the price. So what happened is, is that they, they would see the needs of those around them, brothers and sisters in the church. I mean, you have a church of thousands now that has come together that's not been there before, and there are many people who have needs. And so if someone had something, they would say, hey, I'll sell this so the money and the proceeds from this piece of property can go and it can be used to help meet the needs of those who don't have. It's a biblical principle. It's a biblical principle that believers who have more can help and, and serve those who have less. Ephesians chapter 4 says, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the things that are good so that he may have to give to those that have need. Our, our extra should go to serve those who have less than what they need. And that's what's taking place here. But Ananias and Sapphira sell their property, and at some point, maybe they moved in the emotion of the moment, and they felt, oh, hey, Barnabas is doing this. We, we want to do this as well. And at some point, they began to look at the amount that they had, and so they kept back apart, they said, we'll give the full amount. Maybe they sold it for more than they thought they were going to get with it to start with. And they said, we'll sell this piece of property and give whatever we get from it. Maybe they got a little more and they thought, well, you know, if we keep back the extra, no one's really going to know. They kept back part of the price. Look at this next phrase, his wife also being privy to it. She was aware of what was going on and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter says, Ananias, why has who? Satan. You see the work of Satan that's going on in the heart of Ananias? 
in Sapphira? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto who? Unto God. Real quick note here. Who did he say two verses before he had lied to? The Holy Spirit. If you ever have anybody that seems to question or wonder, is the Holy Spirit one of the persons of the Trinity? Is, is the Holy Spirit God? You take them to Acts chapter 5. He said, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. The Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not a feeling. It's not the wind. He is symbolized by the wind. He is symbolized by forceful, powerful things. But the Holy Spirit is a person. He is as much God as God the Father or God the Son. And we need to understand that reality. Holy Spirit, he said, you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept back part of the land while it remained. Look in verse 5. Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. It means he died. The breath went out of his breath went out of him. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. Well, I reckon so. If you heard that somebody had just dropped dead in church, that, that would get a hold of you. Especially, let's say this morning that we took up, the, we took up an offering with plates like we've done in the past, and, and I went to someone and, and singled them out, and I'll, I'll pick on Pastor James. I don't pick on anybody else, but I go to Pastor James, and like, look, is this, is this the offering you promised you would give? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it is. And boy, he drops over dead. It would cause fear. I love the understatements in the Bible, but they're not done yet. Look at this. In verse 6, the young men arose, wound him up. They bound him up in the grave clothes, carried him out, buried him, and it was about the space of three hours after. I would make a joke about the wife coming in three hours late, but I'll leave that one alone. Not knowing what was done, she came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Do you see the mercy of God in this? Now, we know, we've already read that she was aware of what was going on, but being aware of something is not the same as being complicit to it. She's not necessarily involved in it. And Peter, God through Peter, is giving her the opportunity to tell the truth, to be in the right. And yet she joins right in with her husband. She, he says, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yea, and I've underlined these three words in my Bible, for so much. She joins in the lie that her husband has told. And Peter said to her, how is it, look at this phrase, you have agreed together. This was not a spur-of-the-moment thing. They agreed, they talked it over, they thought it through, and they agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of them which have buried your husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then she fell down straightway at his feet, yielded up the ghost. The young men came in, found her dead, and carried her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. There's a lot we could say about this passage this morning. Let me just tell you straight up, it's, it's not, the, really the main point of this passage is not that some gave and some did not. Ananias and Sapphira gave. The problem is not what they gave or how much they gave, it's the attitude of the heart. 
Jesus does that on the Sermon on the Mount. You remember, he gets past the outside. He said, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that if a man looks upon a woman to lust in his heart, he hath committed adultery with her already. The sin starts in the heart. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was not just keeping back. That was the result of the sin that was in their heart. Jesus said, you have heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, if you are angry with your brother without cause, you have committed murder in, in your heart. And so the Holy Spirit is inspiring Luke to do the same thing here. It's easy for us to sort of look at the superficial, and that's the way our minds like to think. The person who is doing the most, or the person who is doing right, is the person who is right with God, and the person who is not doing it is the person that's not right. No, here's a person, here's two people who are doing, but it's the heart from which it comes that's the problem. We could talk about their, their um, hypocrisy, their hypocrisy that they were more concerned about things than people. Let's be very careful that we don't get so caught up in things and programs and doing things our way that we forget the gospel is about people. Sharing the gospel, reaching the lost, people are important. I remember a, a church that I know of that was having a special program and during the program, one of the young ladies who was participating in it um, had a medical issue and passed out, and she did not come back to immediately. Medical personnel in the church, nurses gathered around her. Some of the pastors were praying over her, and it started taking a little time. And the director of the program came over, and she said, Can y'all hurry up? We've got to finish our program. That's a person to whom the program and a thing has become more important than a person. Let's never get that way. We could look at the fact that they were more concerned about appearance than reality. They were more concerned about their appearance than the truth. They were more concerned that they look generous to the rest of the church than they were the fact that their heart wasn't really generous. Their heart was, I want to do as little as I can get by with to look the best that I can look. I heard someone the other day, and I've said this often, you know, we live in a time when people want to to do the least amount of work for the most amount of pay. And boy, we'd all jump on board to, to criticize that, wouldn't we? Yeah, it's a wrong attitude. And it is the wrong attitude. And yet we come to church and we want the most recognition for the least from our heart. And that's their problem. That's part of their hypocrisy. They were more concerned about their appearance. They wanted to look generous. They wanted to look good. Wow, look at Barnabas. They gave him a name. Maybe they'll give us a name. And they did, dead. <laughs> maybe, they'll, maybe they'll think as well of us as they do of Barnabas. But the problem was is that their outer behavior didn't match their inward reality. And that's where we get to the real sin, the real hypocrisy here. The real hypocrisy is they claimed to believe something spiritually that their physical reality or their physical expression denied. They claimed to believe in the Holy Spirit. They claimed to believe in God. And yet they acted as if he was not real. So as we think about this passage, what I want to do this morning is I want to point out to you three things that our Heavenly Father does for us. 
three things that a loving father does in the life of his church and in the life of his people. In this context of this story, the first thing I would say is that our loving Heavenly Father, one of the blessings and one of the things that he does for us is he guides us to do what is right. A good earthly father does that. He instructs. You go and you read the book of Proverbs, and it's the instructions primarily of a father who is teaching and guiding his son in the way that he should go. And an earthly father seeks to do that, our heavenly father. What is, who is it that puts it into Barnabas's heart to meet the need of someone else? It's his heavenly father. Our heavenly father may move us to do something sacrificial to ourselves that will be beneficial to someone else. And God is the one, the Father is the one who moves Barnabas. Barnabas, you have, you have that piece of property. You could sell that and use the money from that. You don't need that piece of property. You're laying up treasures in heaven. Sell that piece of property and give to those that have need. And Barnabas acts graciously to it. I love the comparison here. I love that God only takes two verses to talk about Barnabas when he takes 12 verses or 11 verses to talk about Ananias and Sapphira. Why? Because someone like Barnabas is not somebody who needs a lot of attention. He's going to get more attention as time goes on, but Barnabas is just simply doing what he is led to do. A heavenly father leads us and motivates us and calls us and speaks to us. Aren't you glad your father speaks to you? Aren't you glad to hear the word of God when he speaks? You go through the scriptures and you see, look, people say, God doesn't speak to me. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. And I love that beyond the basic truth that is always in God's word, that there are moments when there are specific verses that speak to us. I've had conversations with three or four people just this week that have said, Pastor, I, was, I, I heard this sermon, or I heard this lesson, or I was listening to the radio, or I was having my devotions, and there was a verse from God that God spoke to me from his word, and it was exactly what I needed. A heavenly father that speaks to us and tells us what is right to do. But I'm also glad that there's a heavenly father who loves us enough to keep us from things that will hurt us. Our heavenly father lovingly chastises us. Most people say, well, you know, God is good. Boy, God, God blessed me. God met a need this week. Any of y'all had God, God meet a need recently and he's done something for you? Yeah, we say, what do we say? Boy, God is good. And then, of course, somebody standing around will answer back all the time. I've never heard anybody that's experiencing chastisement say, wow. God has just been beating the tar out of me this week. He is so good. And yet, the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he scourges every son in whom his soul delights. He scourges, he whips us. You know, my mom and dad used to say that all the time. I'm just doing this because I love you. I never said this out loud, but I wanted to say, I wish you didn't love me so much because they would have loved on me some more. This is going to hurt me worse than it's going to hurt you. 
I never understood that until it hurt me with my children worse than it hurt them. A loving father chastises. What is taking place in Acts chapter 5? God purging out something from the church. God taking something out of the life. There's a hypocrisy that's there that God is cleaning out. And he does the same thing in us. Let me tell you, hypocrisy will kill you. It may happen immediately like it did for Ananias and Sapphira, or it may happen gradually, or you may even be dead now and not even know it. The Bible says that she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And God is purging, God is cleaning out. Let me say that we better be killing the hypocrisy in our heart or it will be killing us. What is this hypocrisy? It's that hypocrisy that claims to believe something but then lives as if it's not so. I don't know if Ananias and Sapphira, maybe, maybe they claim to believe in the Holy Spirit, they claim to believe in God, but they just didn't think he was actually there. Do you know this morning that God is here? And let me tell you that those who are watching by live stream, God is there. And those who will watch later, and those who might think, I'll get out of this service and I'll go home, and the conviction or what God is saying to me is, will be gone. God is going to be there when you get home. Jonah thought he could outrun God. And he got on a ship, he went down to Tarsus, and he got in a ship to go to Joppa, and he, he went, out to the, went out across the sea. And I love, what the, I love what the sailors say to him on that ship. They say, what God do you worship? You know, they worship the God of the hills and worship the God of the valleys. And, well, we, a bunch of us, we're sailors. We worship the God of the sea. What God do you worship? Jonah, you need to pray to him. I worship the God of heaven and earth and the sky and sea. How do you get away from a God who is everywhere? Because you act like he's not everywhere. And Jonah couldn't flee from God. Where shall I go from your presence? If I ascend up to heaven, behold, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, there, if I if the, go to the Father's part of the earth, the psalmist said, there will thy presence find me. There will thy spirit find me. We claim to believe in God, but we act like he's not really there. Ananias and Sapphira, yeah, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Well, if the Holy Spirit is there, then you can't get by with lying to him. Well, maybe he's here, but maybe they thought, well, he, we know he's here, but just sort of an intangible way. But he doesn't really know what we're thinking. Do you know that God knows every thought you have thought since the moment you began to think? And he knows every thought you're going to think until you quit thinking. Some of y'all have quit this morning. I can see it in your face. God knows our thoughts. And yet we act like he doesn't. God knows what we're doing. You can't fool God. And yet they acted as if the Holy Spirit, or maybe they're like a lot of people today. Maybe they said, well, the Holy Spirit's here and he knows, but he would never do anything to us. God's a God of love. He tolerates everything, even things that are sinful and bad. No, God loves me too much to allow something hurtful in my life. And so he will work to take that, that bad thing out. 
If a parent sees a child reach up under the sink and get some sink cleaner that's poison, and they're about to drink it, what kind of parent would stand back and say, well, I know that's bad for them, but it would be unloving to get it away from them. They really want that. That'd be a terrible parent. Be a bad parent. But what does a good parent do? A good parent will go and will take what is hurtful away from them. I heard a story years ago about a a young child that had to have constant um, injections because of allergies and because of, of medical issues. And there were times where the parents would have to restrain that child because after having so many injections and shots, and yet they would hold the child in place and hold the child down because they knew that those injections were saving that child's life. And there are times in our life where God does things that seem hurtful. He has to kill an Ananias and a Sapphira in our life. He has to kill the hypocrisy in our life. Why? Because he loves us. And he's a loving father that not only tells us the right thing to do, he restrains us from the wrong things to do. And he wants to root out that hypocrisy that's in our life, that that functional atheism that says, I believe in God, but I'm going to live like there is no God. That hypocrisy that comes to church and puts on one face and then goes out and the other six days lives something else. That that hypocrisy that says, "I, I believe God, but then lives differently at school. That lives differently when you're around friends. That lives differently when you're around family members that view things a little differently. That hypocrisy that God is rooting out of... Boy, I I pray that God root this out. This is not me beating you up. This is about the Holy Spirit convicting us of those moments in our life when we live as if what we believe is not true. And that's that hypocrisy that God is lovingly digging out. But there's a third thing that a loving Heavenly Father does for us. A loving Heavenly Father will tell us the right things to do. A loving Heavenly Father will restrain us and will purge us and will clean us from those things that are hurtful and harmful and the hypocrisy that says, I have a loving Heavenly Father, but I'm going to live like He's not real. There's also a loving Heavenly Father that will put a fearful peace in our hearts. Now that sounds like a contradiction, a fearful peace. Do you notice the fear in this passage? Boy, I fully understand it. I have been in some services where some strange things went on. I've been to some, we, we, we went to camp meeting the other night, and it was pretty mellow. Holy Spirit was there, but if, if you've been around camp meetings much, you know Wednesday night, great service. Thank you all that came. Wonderful preaching, wonderful music. Choir did an outstanding job, but it was pretty mellow as far as camp meetings go. I've been to some camp meetings. I've been to some services where, as the old people, you say, it got on. And it scared, man, you a kid, it scares you. I remember sitting in a camp meeting one night, right as the second sermon started, or maybe it was the third or fourth, I can't remember. The lights went out. Old Mountain Church in West Virginia, the windows were up, there was no air conditioning. We sat there for two or three hours. People started to get in right at midnight. Six people came to the altar. and At midnight, six people came to the altar. Did you all hear that? I said at midnight. We were still there. People were getting right. And I was sitting, there was a thunderstorm, and I was sitting right next to an open window looking right out to the cemetery. <laughs> and every time the lightning struck, I got saved all over again. 
So I've seen some things that brought fear. I've never seen anything like this. And boy, I can imagine, even not just the people that saw it, the people that heard about it were filled with fear. There's a kind of fear that puts fear in our hearts that doesn't bring peace. But there's also the fear of the Lord that is the only way you will have peace. It's the kind of reverential or respectful fear that we have for our earthly fathers sometimes and should have for our heavenly fathers. Look over in Acts chapter 9. I want you to see a verse there. As God continues to work in his church, this morning I, I thought about this comparison, this illustration. I have, a, I have a fear of electricity. Now that doesn't mean that I'm ready to go Amish and get rid of all my lights and certainly this time of year not the air condition. Thank God for the common grace of air condition. You can hear me this morning because of electricity. We can see one another because of electricity. We're comfortable because of the air condition that's powered by electricity. You'll go home this afternoon and some of you will cook food and you'll eat because of electricity and we're grateful for it. But we also, I have a, I have a, a respectful fear of what electricity can do. If I see an open wire sticking out of a wall somewhere, I'm not going to go over and grab that, that line. I'm not going to stand in a pool of water and grab anything electrical. I'm going to be careful around it. Why? Because I know its power. I know that if I cross boundaries, its power can be deadly. And the same is true with God. God is a loving Heavenly Father. God cares about us. But I know that there are lines that I will not cross because I know his power. And I know that there are times in Scripture where those who crossed that line experienced what happened. And so I have a fear of God, but what happens when I have the right attitude toward God? I can begin experiencing peace because I know his power and I know who he is. And I know that he's a I know that he's a powerful God. If he were only powerful, I would be feared, filled with the wrong kind of fear because he could do anything that he wanted to do. But he is not only powerful, he is holy. And what he will do will be right. Not only is he holy and is he powerful, he's almighty, he is loving. And what he does, he can do anything, and he will do what is right, and he will do what is best for me. And so I have that fear of the Lord. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Look in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Then the churches had rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And look at this. Walking in the fear of the Lord. When did they have rest? It wasn't just because the persecutor had gotten saved. Their rest and their peace came because they knew the power of their father. How many times as a child did we lay our head down on our pillow at night and we could sleep and we could be at peace? Why? Because we knew the strength of the father who was taking care of us and was watching over us. And I knew that anybody that came after me had to come through my dad first. And even whatever was under my bed, and I wasn't real sure sometimes, and whatever was lurking in my closet, and I know there were some things in there sometimes, 
my dad had assured me he wasn't going to let anything happen to me. And I can have peace because I have a heavenly father who has power and who has holiness and who has love. How do I experience these blessings? Well, the person that we see in this text that experiences those blessings is the one we started with at the very beginning. A man by the name of Joseph or Barnabas. They called him, they surnamed him, they added the name on. Bar meaning son of, Navis, Barnabas, son of consolation, son of encouragement. Three things that I want you to see from that, and I'll close. One, we need to have a strong spirit of humility. A strong spirit of humility to be humbled before God, to be humbled before him. It's not about me. This life is not about me. Serving God is not about me. Worshiping is definitely not about me. Being in this service this morning is not about me. It's about the Father. It's about the God that we're worshiping. And to have that sense of humility that, wow, I can't do it. I can't do it. We are a group of broken, flawed, often failing sinners. But we have been saved by the grace and mercy of God. And because of that, we can experience the blessings of the Father. We can, we can be cleansed of that spirit of hypocrisy. We need a spirit of humility. We also need a strong spirit of honesty. Just to be honest before God. Be real. Be real. Not, hip, not hypocrites. Not putting on a front. Let's be real. Now, I don't mean we go around fawning our sins and our failures, but I'm saying, look, we've got to be honest about this. Apart from God, we can do nothing. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. You, apart from me, you can do... Some people act like it says in that verse, apart from me, you're at a serious disadvantage. But that's not what it says at all. Without me, you can do nothing. And the work of God in, in a Barnabas' life and what God now uses, this is the first place we are introduced to him. And we're going to see him throughout the book of Acts, serving and that humility that honesty and that humility, a man in Acts chapter 13 that is sent out to serve with Paul, then Saul, and the Holy Spirit as they prayed and fasted said, separate me Barnabas and Saul unto the work that I have called them unto. And they go out and it's Barnabas and Saul. But within a few verses, the Holy Spirit changes that team around and now it's Paul and Barnabas. And as someone has said, it taketh more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. And Barnabas plays the second fiddle for the rest of that ministry, the rest of that mission trip. It's Paul and Barnabas. And Barnabas doesn't raise a ruckus. Barnabas doesn't argue and say, hey, you remember God, all that money I gave to you? I gave money to your church. I faithfully served. I've done all these things. He simply steps back and says, God, you can work more. You can work more through Paul as the lead of this mission team. I'll step back and I'll just be the and part of the team. That spirit of humility, not one that says, hey, you've got to see how great I am. And then the third thing is a heart for God. Simply a heart for God. 
Can I say something to us dads this morning? I'm grateful for the godly fathers in our church. So many that are pouring into their children. The ones that are being the spiritual leaders in their home. But let us be very careful. A father who is half-hearted in their, in their search for God or in their passion for God will very often raise a child who is wholehearted for this world. Let's make sure that we have a heart for God. Let's make sure that we are real. I'm not talking about perfect. None of us are perfect. And if you ever thought you were perfect, be a parent. You'll find out real quick. You're far from it. But be real. Have a, have a whole-hearted passion to know God. And when we do that, when we do that, that's when that rest and that peace will come. And that spiritual growth and the Lord added to their number. And they were walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. A loving Heavenly Father. One who breaks chains. One who has reached to us with a loving hand. One who cares about us. One who shows us what is right to do. One who keeps from us the things that are harmful and hurtful. And the one that brings peace. I don't know what you've got this morning in your heart that's causing you to be fearful. But God can take that fear. He can break that chain of fear. Maybe your chain this morning is hypocrisy. And you felt a little bit of it seeping into your life. You've begun to live as though what you claim to believe is not so. God can break you free from that as well. He can kill the hypocrisy in your life before it kills you. Thank God that he is a loving, merciful, gracious, perfect, heavenly Father. Father, we pray to you this morning. I pray that you will speak to our hearts where there are things you have shown us to do that we're not obedient. Forgive us and convict us of that this morning. Father, there may be someone in this service that is living with some hypocrisy. Lord, the virus, the disease of hypocrisy is seeping into their life and it's growing and they may already be and they may be dying and not even know it. Father, I pray that you will speak to their hearts. Maybe a, a father who professes to be a believer and is saying one thing but is living a, another life altogether. A mother that says one thing on Sunday but is, is living differently or a student that says one thing at church but is another thing at home or at school or with their friends. Lord, it's a danger to all of us, but you love us enough to, to eradicate that, that virus from our lives. Father, maybe there's somebody this morning that's not living in your peace. There's a situation, there's a problem, there's an issue in their life that is causing the wrong kind of fear. May this morning, may you draw them to an understanding that you are a loving, caring,